2: From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. In this special holiday edition of Forum, we've gone back into our archives to two interviews that Michael Krasny, our recently retired host, did in 2011. They showcase his depth and love of literature as he speaks with the winners of that year's National Book Critics Circle Award, Jennifer Egan and Isabel Wilkerson. These are two of the best books of the decade, and I'm a huge fan of both writers. Egan's novel, A Visit from the Goon Squad, traipses through San Francisco and beyond. Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Suns, The Epic Story of America's Great Migration, reframed the origins of modern America. That's next on Forum, right after this news.
3: From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. Good morning and welcome to the second hour of this morning's Forum. Author, journalist, and former San Franciscan, Jennifer Egan has distinguished herself with such novels as Look at Me, Invisible Circus, which was made into a film starring Cameron Diaz, and The Keep, which we discuss with her on Forum. Her most recent book is a volume of interrelated stories with the realized structure of a novel or a twin-sided, long-playing record. It's called A Visit from the Goon Squad, and it's set partially in San Francisco, as well as in New York, Naples, and Africa. And Jennifer Egan joins us in studio for this Forum Hour. And so good to see you again. You too. Well, somebody would think, certainly, by reading your book, Boy, Does She Know San Francisco, because we're all over the place, uh, and you have roots here. We're in the Sunset, and Broadway, and Polk Street, and Seacliff, and Daly City, but they would also think you know a lot about the music industry and that you had maybe experience in the punk industry. You well, come at this by imagination mainly, don't you?
4: Absolutely. I mean, I was a teenager in San Francisco, and I think that comes through. You know, I went to Lowell High School, and I certainly went to the Mabuhay Gardens, and it's Punk heyday. Day, although I wasn't really a punk rocker. But I, I felt that there was something interesting going on there, and I wanted to be part of it. So I think that really does come through. And as far as the music industry goes, I didn't really know much about it. uh, Going into this book, I had wanted as a journalist to, to get an assignment that would let me learn about the music industry. And I had tried it from every direction, and it never worked. Uh, The closest I came was that I was following a pair of twin sister rappers about 10 years ago who were supposed to make it big with a new album. And I think that I used them a little bit in this sister group that I talk about in Goon Squad called Stop Go. But at a certain point of following the the twin dime sisters, I realized that their album was never actually going to be released, even though they thought it was and they were being told it was. So I, I was yanked off that story when that became clear. But I think what really led me to the music industry with with this book was just that it's so much about time. And my deep inspiration was really Proust. And and music plays a huge part in, in Search of Lost Time because as we all know, music has a way of transporting us back to earlier moments of our lives like almost nothing else. Maybe smells would be the other one. But, um, you know, anyone who's been a teenager and danced to music and hears those songs later knows that it is just an immediate transport into the past. And I think that's really why I focused on the music industry. It's
3: always my definition of what Proust called involuntary memory, because you hear a song and then suddenly you're back in that previous time and all these associations start to begin... Just like you say, from the olfactory you get a lot, but from just the music you get so much. But you said The Sopranos was also a major inspiration. for this It movie.
4: really was. I loved that show, and it was often said that it was novelistic, and I really felt that was true. I felt like I lived with that show over years and got so deeply involved in the characters. And I found myself thinking, why? where does the power of this show come from? And I felt like the two things that really interested me about it were, one, the way that um, it played with public life versus private life. You know, it used these kind of cliché mobsters like Tony Soprano, but then flipped us onto t- their interior world, which was so different from their external world. As and we all know this from life. You know, Tony Soprano was such a strange, nuanced, neurotic guy on the inside, even as he appeared a cliched thug on the outside. And and I felt like the show did that again and again with with the characters. And then I also loved that people who seemed very peripheral would suddenly become very central for a season. And it was almost like we were meeting them for the first time with all of the their conflicts and and you know petty you know rages and wishes and I I wanted to do that I love the idea of playing with characters as being peripheral and then central and I do a lot in this you book.
3: do it a lot and what you also do which is really um, uh, extraordinary in many ways is you take us into the, suddenly the future of these characters' lives not only in their inner world but suddenly you project out what happens to them years later in what is a very concise and pithy way of suddenly seeing what they have become.
4: Well, in a way, I had no choice because I had set, I had set things in, in the present initially, and then I wanted to find out what would happen, or I wanted to, to, to depict what would happen to some of those characters, so I had no choice but to, to jump out into the future, which actually ended up being a very amusing and interesting exercise.
3: No, but I mean, for example, we're on a safari in one story. It was a story, I think, that was in The New Yorker, and in that story... Suddenly we find out what happens to these people years and years ahead of time, just as the plot moves forward and as the narrative moves forward. We're given that information by you as omniscient narrator.
4: Yeah, that was int- That was something I had actually wanted to do for a while. I loved the idea of trying to write a piece in which we're constantly being pulled out of the present and told what will happen many years later. It just seemed like a strange... Kind of pivoting to do again and again in, in a piece. So I I tried it in that one, and it happens that for the first time when we meet a Samburu warrior in Africa and we leap out into the future and learn what will ultimately happen to his grandson. And in fact, that warrior's grandson reappears in the book at a later point.
3: There are characters who do reappear, mainly Benny Salazar, who is a punk rocker that became a music producer, and Sasha, with whom we begin. We begin. With this kleptomaniac, essentially, who is writing a story with her her therapist, which is going to be her future story. They're working this story out together. And then later on, we find her in a PowerPoint by her daughter at the end of the novel. And by the way, this is really quite in itself something that a normal reader wouldn't expect to find a PowerPoint story. No, i a 12-year-old I girl in the future. Yeah, well.
4: I didn't expect to write a PowerPoint story, especially since I had never actually used PowerPoint and didn't have enough memory on my computer to hold PowerPoint. But that was a little bit of a fixation that I developed. I suddenly, I, I was reading about the uh, 2008 election and about the turnaround of the Obama campaign. And it turned, it, it turned out that one of the pivotal documents in all of that was a PowerPoint presentation that was shown to the campaign group and had a huge impact on how the campaign presented itself and i thought and it was branded right in the times it was called a powerpoint and i thought so this has become an absolute genre of communication it's not a memo it's not a paper it's a powerpoint and then i thought well so what would happen if i tried to write fiction in powerpoint but for me it really was quite a leap because i write by hand so i'm i'm a legal pad writer <laughs> So I initially tried to write my PowerPoint by hand on legal pads. And as you can imagine, that didn't work terribly No, you well. had a string
3: for the PowerPoint. <laughs> I
4: did, and it hurt, let me tell you, and the extra memory to hold it.
3: <laughs> Talking to Jennifer Egan, her new book is Visit, A Visit from the Goon Squad. And I know you've been a little bit um, uh, quiet about the title and what it all means, but it's hard not to associate it with what you mentioned before, which is time and the ravages of time.
4: Yes, I, it's interesting. I actually knew the title of this book before I had written a single word. I knew I wanted to write a book called "A Visit from the Goon Squad" probably ten years ago, and so I was before th- the Sopranos. Well, I guess I guess that actually was before. Yeah. Although I do feel like the the goon in the title is a little bit of a wink to the Sopranos. But um, when it became clear that I was writing this idiosyncratic book, I thought, well, maybe this is the book that has that title. And then I thought, OK, so what does – who is the goon? I mean, in a way, there are too many goons. There, Everyone is a goon. You know, we start with a woman who steals the wallet of a stranger in a bathroom. So she's kind of a goon. Then we – you know, we find – she's on a date with a guy who seems not to be very nice to her. Maybe he's the goon. So I, I wondered myself who the goon was. And then there came a point – when someone actually said, time's a goon, isn't that the expression? And I tend to write so blindly, I don't really know what will happen next when I do my first drafts. And so when I wrote that and then saw it, I thought, ah. It must have I'm...
3: been in your unconscious, maybe.
4: I, clearly. Perhaps. Thank God for the unconscious, that's all I can say. If I were limited to my conscious mind, I, I'd probably be doing something else right now.
3: <laughs> well, you have a pretty rich unconscious, if I may say so. I mean, some of the, there's a story in here about a genocidal dictator. There's a story in here about a... A PR woman who uh, winds up having to do time because of a rather... How do you even characterize what she did? I mean, and where does where does that come out of your fertile imagination? Talk about her party, because, I mean, I, that's one of the things that stayed with me in this book, the image of the party that she threw.
4: Well, okay, so the, this is a woman who was a very uh, important, uh, hot publicist at one point, and she has a tremendous downfall that comes from a, a design plan she has for this gigantic party that will, she thinks, and everyone thinks, sort of define a generation like Truman Capote's black and white ball. But she has this, uh, this yen to make the room look a certain way and she does it by mixing oil and water in colored plastic trays and putting them under lights and the idea is that the hot lights will make the oil swirl and it will look very beautiful and all of that happens but what she isn't expecting is that the plastic trays melt so the result is that she essentially dumps boiling oil onto 500 Uber important guests, and you know it's it, this is somewhat comic. Um,
3: it's comic. It's also your unconscious getting back at all these fancy people, maybe
4: <laughs> who didn't invite me to their parties. Um, so anyway, she That is very funny, though she is uh, disgraced. And then, but the story—that's all in the past. The story is about how she, in desperate desire to support her young daughter, who's in private school, takes on the job of rehabilitating the reputation of a genocidal dictator. And her huge insight about how to do this is that she gets the idea that if he wears a fuzzy blue hat, his reputation will begin to be rebuilt. And when that begins to work, she has another insight, which is that he should be linked to a movie star. So she orchestrates a meeting between him and this movie star whom we... Then actually meet again in the book at another point but it 's it 's a crazy idea. They all go to this third world country where he lives and and she orchestrates the meeting and it all goes a little crazy
3: but it 's wonderfully imaginative and there 's a sense when you 're talking about the inner lives of characters when you write about the men, I was going to say specifically some of the men, but ladal okay you know it 's a woman character and you 're in this PR person's mind and all of that. But you get into these men's minds in ways that, that I really found fascinating. I'm not talking about, for example, the the character's brother who becomes obsessed with this movie star and winds up attacking her. The kind of lust that you get at in men um, is is really almost preternatural in a way. I mean, you think about all the all the women who do so well, excuse me, all the men who do so well with women characters. You think of Flaubert and Tolstoy and so forth but getting into a man's inner life, which you do not only with lust, but in so many different ways.
4: I really love writing about men and as men, because I think that for me, my real weakness is I have trouble when the, what I'm writing about overlaps with my own life. That's where I freeze up. So in a way, nothing. It, the The best situation for me as a writer is one in which the boundaries are such that the character can't be confused with me. Well, no, no easier way than making the character male. So if anything, I've been trying hard to work against that. And I I was carefully counting in this book, which chapters were told from the point of view of which gender, because in my prior novel, The Keep, I weigh very heavily toward the male point of view. And I felt like I just didn't want to get stuck there and and find that that was my path of least resistance. So there was some heavy counting going on in this book, and I wanted to make sure it was 50-50. I find it a huge release to write about men and as men. I I, I can't quite explain it. I mean, I didn't intend it. You know, I started with Sasha with the theft of a wallet in a women's bathroom by a young woman who's struggling with a compulsion to steal, who's on a blind date. And in the course of writing that story, I had this kind of throwaway laugh line where she entertains her date by describing her ex-boss, who's a record producer, and I found myself writing that she tells her date that he sprinkles gold flakes in his coffee and sprays pesticide in his armpits, and I just thought that would be funny, but I found myself, after I wrote that chapter, thinking, so who is this guy, and why does he do those things? And
3: this is Benny Mendoza, who we meet in a later. In fact, you also have him uh, sort of invading the suburbs. He becomes a fairly successful record producer and winds up in, a, is it Crandale? Is that the place?
4: Yes, I, ma- I made that up, but a Westchester suburb. Yes, exactly. I mean, so I, I found myself going into Benny Salazar's point of view and writing that chapter. And in the course of that chapter, he's trying—he's in the middle of a divorce and trying to connect with his kid. I said
3: and- Mendoza and I meant Salazar. <laughs> Sorry about that.
4: No problem. And um, and so he has a moment of thinking he, he couldn't believe he ever thought he would be able to live in a place like Crandale. He just sticks out and he doesn't fit. But his wife, meanwhile, has ascended to the number one double team, which evokes another cliche. And then I found myself thinking, but wait a minute, who is this woman? And wh- how, what was it like when they were married? And why did their marriage end? And so I followed that impulse into another chapter. And then
3: you get into a whole area of a guy who wants to do a final tour, a flame out tour. And where does, I mean, uh, I'm thinking to myself, where does this come from, from Jennifer's imagination? He's going to go out and he's going to do, he's a former musician, he's going to do a final tour, right? And he's going to die, essentially, in his final tour.
4: Well, it's funny because in, that actually all happens in the story that I was, that, that I was um, led into by wondering about Benny's marriage and about his wife. And again, because I write pretty blindly, not knowing what will happen next, the whole chapter is built around this meeting that, that, the, that Benny's ex-wife, Stephanie, about whom the chapter really is, is a meeting she's going to have with a guy named Bosco, who is a former rock star who now plays little songs on a ukulele, but Benny is still producing them out of friendship. So everything is is pointing toward this meeting, but I had no idea what would happen at the meeting. And I started to feel some pressure, like, well, wh- what's going to happen? Like, what's Bosco going to be like? And I remember specifically sitting in the backyard in a chair and thinking, OK, the moment has come. We're going to the meeting. <laughs> and I had my legal pad and I started writing. And I was just I was kind of laughing out loud by what emerged, which is Bosco is this overweight cancer-ridden, depressed guy in a huge black chair who announces to Stephanie, his publicist, that he wants to... to have this tour where he will go wild on stage and leap around just like he used to. And when she points out that he's really not physically capable of that, it will actually kill him. He says, that's the point. That's the idea. I'm going to I'm gonna just tour until I die. And I thought, oh, my God, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Well, what a
3: perfect metaphor for so much rock and roll. I mean, really, when you think about <laughs> it, flaming out. Uh, there, there is also... Uh, i mean a sense in in that story that i don't i don't give away too much of the plot here there's a danger in in doing this because i really was quite drawn into so many of the uh the worlds that you create here which all intersect in so many different ways. In fact, you're talking about getting an idea and having your yellow pad in the backyard, many of your ideas come about in the shower, as I understand. It.
4: Yes, for some reason I, I really used a lot of hot water on um on this book. I would I found that because I, I didn't really know how the pieces would fit together and the organizing principle of it seemed so nonlinear. I found that at the end of the day, I would stand in the shower, maybe it's just that, you know, you can't get an email when you're in the shower, you can't get a phone call when you're in the shower, you don't tend to really even have a conversation, I would stand there and I would feel I would feel how the total shape was was pulling together. And I would feel the connections among the pieces. And I had some big insights in the shower. Um, And it was interesting, because usually my insights come about when I'm actually writing. And that's why I write by hand, because there's something about the physical act of doing that that makes me have ideas and make connections, but I don't know. This, this book, it was really, it was a lot about the shower, and I, I found myself thinking, you know, I know water is scarce, and I know that you know, in 20 years I may not be able to take showers like this, so I'm just going to enjoy it now.
3: <laughs> the way the stories intersect also reminds me of uh, the shape of some early American literature. I don't know if this had any influence on you at all, but are books like Winesburg, Ohio by Sherwood Anderson, or Kane by Gene Toomer, or even Go Down Moses by Faulkner that really or in our time by Hemingway that have the structure of a novel even though they're stories that are interrelated this is really a novel that you've done here
4: yes it's interesting i wouldn't say that i was thinking of those books so much i think i was thinking more about Proust, where again, I mean, it, there's there is a central through line. There is a character called Marcel who holds all of it together. But we travel to so many different worlds at different moments, and and a, a lot of the power of the book comes about through the the surprise of feeling time's passage, which we seem to always realize in moments, even though of course it's incremental. Um, and so I think I think that was definitely the literary model that I had in my mind. But but sure, I think I was I was hearkening back to a whole um a a whole well of literary works in which the 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 progress is not linear that i was very interested in that
3: you've got a good lineage here actually i mean a a literary lineage but you also bring into focus the sense of time passing in another way of not only an era like the punk era passing but how people have to accommodate to different lives as they move up or down the social scales i mean you got benny in his office and a guy comes by the way do you actually catch Fish like that in the East River? Can, that was the one detail I wondered.
4: You um, really can. You, you can, can catch, catch striped a bass. bass. In
3: the, really? In the, wow. Um, he comes and he brings a fish to bed. I mean, I thought, that, again, this is just comical. And yet at the same time, it's poignant. It's really moving.
4: Well, one thing that's funny about this, this is back to the point about the unconscious. Um, so this this guy is very angry because he, he is really living a very marginal life, picking up litter um, in a park for his living. And he discovers that the friend that he was in a punk band with as a teenager is now a very important record producer. He read about him in a magazine. So he goes fishing and he catches a fish, a striped bass in the East River and brings it to his old friend. And not surprisingly, a, a dead fish is not really a welcome Gift. In fact, and, it's
3: what the goons use, isn't it? Well, <laughs> in that, the mafia? That.
4: Well, that's what's so funny. I actually didn't know that. So that's an example of the unconscious doing its job. Apparently, one way within the mob of letting someone know that their their life is, you know, hanging in the balance is to leave a dead fish outside their door, and I never actually knew that. So. But your point about, yes, live, you know, um, destinies sort of going up and down and the roller coaster of that was very interesting to me. And again, very Proustian. I mean, you know, a, a prostitute ends up in the aristocracy in In Search of Lost Time. Um, you know, there, those kinds of vicissitudes are so much of what the surprise of time passing is about. And I really wanted to capture that um, where people sort of go down and then back up because this very same marginal character who catches the fish at the very end of the book is raised aloft in, in a way that I think no one would have expected. So those surprises were key for me in terms of what would make the make the book fun to read.
3: I was also wondering about, and this was a surprise for me as a reader, because last time you were on Forum actually was with the cover story you did in the New York Times about bipolar children. You have a bipolar character here and a, and a character who loses control uh, and who you know does something pretty violent actually
4: it's true. It's interesting. I had actually written that piece about him some years before, um, and I, I don't really think about diagnosis too much when I'm writing about people. I feel like we're all basically somewhat nutty to one, one degree or another. Um, but we're I did, all goons
3: and we're all nuts.
4: right? <laughs> we kind of are <laughs> at various points. Um, but yes, it, it, when I uh, when I returned to that character and, and brought him back in, I did actually say that he was bipolar um, because I wanted to make it clear that he had stabilized. I mean, in in the in the chapter. Um, told from his point of view he is conducting a celebrity profile of a young actress and I was it's written as a celebrity profile as if the the chapter were actually what had been published in a magazine
3: and he's actually a talented journalist really isn't he?
4: yeah he was you know a, a writer of promise who sort of fell into the celebrity profiling gig as a way of making money but I was interested having spent years reading celebrity profiles as I'm sure we all do at one point or another in the, the strange mix of emotions I could detect on the part of the writer toward the subject you know the kind Kind of, in a way, the anger one feels at, at having to jump through a million hoops to get, you know, a very short amount of time.
3: 45 minutes, right? Yeah, 40. <laughs> or 40, excuse
4: me. <laughs> um, and yet, the, also, the, just the writer's desire to write something interesting, to do something good. So, anyway, all of this in him collides in, in, a, in an attempted act of violence, although it really is meant to be funny. Um, the humor doesn't, I must confess, work for everyone <laughs> in that story. But um,
3: It worked for me. I oh, mean, it's, good. <laughs> it's, it's dark humor. <laughs> but I mean it's what we they used to call black humor uh, or gallows humor but it's humor.
4: Yeah, no that that was the intent. I mean, it, you know, to my mind the best humor is extremely serious. And if you can be extremely serious and funny at the same time, I feel like you've you've raised yourself up a, a notch. So I'm always trying to find that combination of, you know, something that is both funny and and quite quite serious.
3: You've been listening to a previously recorded interview with novelist Jennifer Egan, author of Welcome to the Goon Squad, which has recently won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction and also the National Book Critics Circle Award. In this special Memorial Day edition of Forum, in the second half of the hour, we'll listen to our interview with another National Book Critics Circle Award winner, journalist Isabel Wilkerson, who won the nonfiction prize for her groundbreaking history of the Great Migration of Blacks from the South to the North, Warmth of Other Suns. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. Good morning and welcome to this morning's forum program. Who set you flowing? The black poet Gene Toomer asked in his 1923 masterpiece, *Cane*. He was writing about the many thousands of blacks who left the warmer climates of the South and headed north or west in search of a job, a better life and all that has come to be known as the Great Migration. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author Isabel Wilkerson chronicles the exodus of some six million between 1915 and 1970, the first black woman to win a Pulitzer Prize in journalism and the first to win for individual reporting. She's also a recipient of the coveted George Polk Award and John Guggenheim Fellowship, and has lectured at Harvard and served as professor at Princeton and Emory and is currently professor of journalism and director of narrative nonfiction at Boston University. Her book is The Warmth of Other Suns. Some of you may re- recognize that title from Richard Wright. It's the epic story, the subtitle, The Epic Story of America's Great Migration. She joins us in studio for the second Forum Hour, and welcome to the program. Great to be here. Great to have you here. I should mention to listeners that your Pulitzer Prize, 1994, you were Chicago Bureau Chief of the New York Times. That was about the... um, The floods and and a 10-year-old boy. It was.
1: Uh Yes, it was for uh, yet another epic story that was in some ways a 500-year flood that uh, also displaced people. So there's interesting uh, connections between it. I hadn't even thought of it until you said that. (laughs) Well, it's great to get you
3: thinking of those dots connecting. There's (laughs) certainly a lot of displacement here. And uh, actually, we established the fact uh, before we went on the air that you spent uh, 15 years on this book, spent... um, roughly uh, 1,500 interviews? 1,200.
1: 1, I stopped 200. counting after 1,200.
3: <laughs> so it may, may have been 1,500. It could have been. <laughs> what, There seems to be kind of a, a, a commonality in many respects of people, I mean, as I said, coming up here because the jobs were up here, presumably, but also um, uh, getting a sense of escaping from Jim Crow, escaping from the oppression and bigotry that was a part of the Deep South, and sometimes finding... Uh, Uh, the fruition of ambition up here, but more often, in many cases, finding different kinds of bigotry.
1: Well, after spending time uh, talking to so many people and, and, and researching this, I've come to the conclusion that it was as much a defection from the South as it was a migration. In some ways, they were seeking political asylum in other parts of their own country to escape the caste system that had held them in a rigid place in which uh, virtually every aspect of their daily lives and movements were were dictated by laws that people set down on such arcane ways. I mean, For example, it was against the law in Birmingham for a black person and a white person to play checkers together. And in many southern courtrooms, there was a black Bible and a white Bible to swear to tell the truth on.
3: Well, I mentioned Richard Wright and in Uncle Tom's uh, Children, he writes about what he calls the ethic of living Jim Crow. You weren't supposed to read certain books. You weren't supposed to look at white women uh, in any way at all. And uh, there were all of these sort of unwritten laws that people had to subscribe to. And the idea was up north, you didn't have to live that way.
1: Yeah, the idea was that once they left, they would be no longer part of that caste system, they, at, at least in their view. And in some ways, they left for the same reason that any uh, immigrant from any part of the world, the people who uh, crossed the Atlantic in steerage, the people who've crossed the Pacific to get to, the, to these shores, in some ways it was that immigrant longing and uh, desire, the heart's desire to be free and to be able to build a new life in a place that there were no guarantees, but that there was this hope and faith that life would be better. And so I see this as a way of looking and connecting the dots about how we all have this kind of this past. We're all here really because someone made the difficult choice to leave the only place that they'd ever known for a place they'd never seen. And I think that shows that we have so much more in common than we've been led to believe.
3: Well that's Sort of elemental American experience. In fact, you say they were more like refugees than migrants, uh, so it becomes a diaspora of immigration like the American experience itself. And again reminds me of Richard Wright who said the Negro is America's metaphor.
1: Exactly. Here if, we are. Yeah. It, it was so massive that at the beginning of the century, at the beginning of the Great Migration, ninety percent of all African Americans were living in the South. By the end of the Great Migration, decades later. Nearly half were living outside of the South, in the North, in the Midwest, in the West. So it was a complete dispersal of an entire population of people in this country. border it's not an country.
3: understatement to say that it transformed
1: America. It transformed America on multiple levels, culturally, politically, uh, economically, uh, and uh, y- you might say it was in some ways a transfer of Southern culture from the South to other parts of the North and, w- and West, which then, once the people were exposed to the metabolism of the North, changed both North and South. The migration was also a precursor to the to the Civil Rights Movement because uh, the people who uh, left... Uh, were they indicate they, their their leaving was a proof that they were willing to that they had options finally that came from World War one and that they were willing to act on them and that the people once they got to the north they were in a position to be in some ways a leverage for the people who stayed so that the people who stayed were were more in a position to Face those hoses and the sheriff's dogs and uh, the uh, the dangers that they faced when they tried to go f- toward the ultimate uh, uh, showdown, you might say, in the in the South. And then finally, because there were people in the North who were making more money than those in the South, they were, as with most immigrants, sending money back to the South to you know help their families and ultimately to finance this great migration. So it was an inspiration in some ways, both North and South.
3: Also coming back sometimes with flashy cars and a lot of cash in their pockets Absolutely. and fine clothes and. <laughs> (laughs) That was allure too. Why? I mean, this is such an extraordinarily important historical story that has had so little attention.
1: I think that because, you are know, thinking about when it began, it began during World War I, and it began because the North needed workers, because the uh, the immigration from Europe had come to a halt, and there needed to be uh, labor for the uh, the foundries, the steel mills, the slaughterhouses of the North, the factories of the North, and so the North began looking to the South for the cheap labor. It was, in some ways, the emerging market of the United States at that time. The South was. The cheapest labor in the country were those who were African Americans, who were essentially not even accustomed of being paid, many of them, because they were essentially working for the right to live on someone else's land. They were sharecroppers. They were sharecroppers, yeah. correct. So that meant that, uh, that that that's how it began. So it began during World War One, And with each stage and phase of the migration, people thought it was over. But no one told the people, so they continued to come. So the there was It was hard to get, get, a, get a sense of what was this about and how long was it going to go on, what was the meaning of it, and the earliest reporters on this uh, subject were not going to be there at the end of it. I mean, it started in 1915. It ended in 1970. One of our best-known poets was a reporter at the time that the migration began. A lot of people don't know that, and he wrote about it. It was Carl Sandburg. He was a reporter in Chicago. He was one of the first people to write about the migration, but, of course, by the time it was over, he was no longer around to be able to... Uh, or. Uh, to, to tell that story. so it, it Some still, of those
3: hog butchers of the world were actually black people who came from the South. Exactly. And, you know.
1: Isn't that interesting? So. And
3: 1917 was what was known as Red Summer. That was a, a spate of lynchings throughout the South, which also drove this... Engine that you're talking about of so many coming north. Yeah, know.
1: it was that violence that was necessary to maintain this untenable uh, caste system, which was bound to unravel at some point. It just simply could not. It could not be maintained if if a system of that of that r- level of brutality uh, and specificity is uh, is to be maintained. If it takes that kind of violence, then it means that eventually it was not going to last. And ultimately, the people began to you might say, protest by walking away.
3: Talking with Isabel Wilkerson, her book is The Warmth of Other Suns, The Epic Story of America's Great Migration. And There's um, a sense in reading your book of, of certain things that you've discovered through your assiduous research, and I'm talking about things that may have been um, misconceptions but sociologically come to the fore here, and, and, and those have to do with, well, more black tied to their families and more educated than had been assumed, more education among blacks than had been assumed, and also um, the sense of, of of much stronger ambitions than had been assumed.
1: I think that, you know, new new research is coming out. Actually, it's now a burgeoning uh, source of study, which is a wonderful thing to see because now more census data is coming out. Uh, as each old census, 1930, 1940, becomes available and people are able to look at it with the, the new digitized technology that we now have, we're learning more and more about why these people left and what were the circumstances and that they uh, had, what was the level of education. And it turns out that there is something special about people who are going to leave the only place I've ever known for a place far away. They end up often being greater risk takers they're less patient for the status quo of wherever they happen to be. They tend to be better educated than those that they leave behind and often are as educated if not in so, in some cases some cities they were more educated than the people who who were there in the place that they arrived. The difference was that they they culturally they were they spoke, you know, with an accent and they were not dressed in the same way as the sophisticated city people. So they stood out in that way and they are often the source of a great deal of resentment, partly because there was a fear that they were going to threaten the wages of the people who were already there. Um, in other words, the arrival of people just who like are, immigrants
3: now, exactly,
1: mean. just like immigrants now. So that's why I see these connections between the two. But some of the interesting uh, uh facts that have come out as a result of the new uh, analysis of census data, for which I'm very grateful to the many sociologists who are now studying this, is that they actually were more likely to be married than less likely to be married. More and family stability. More family stability yeah. than the, than those that they met in the North. And that's because they, in some ways they had those old Southern uh, church-going values where they had to work so hard that they had to clean together as clans, um, which is also very similar to the old country for almost anyone who comes to the United States. Then you get here and you get city and, well, who needs to have all those old strictures and we're going to be like the urban people around us? It turned out that they were more likely to be raising their children in two-parent households, and they were more likely, they actually were making more money than the people, than the African-Americans that they found who were here already, the small core of people who were here, who were uh, ministers, domestics and and others, because they had come from such a harsh place. They were willing, like most immigrants, to work longer hours because they had no choice or to work multiple jobs. And so they actually made more money, even though they were making less per hour for their wages and that's so typically, beautifully, classically American immigrant story. However, of course, they were not immigrants, and a lot of them don't view themselves as that, do not like the term, and don't even really view themselves as part of this great migration, which is one reason it wasn't written about as well or talked about. They did not talk about what they went through, and that's what made the, the work of uncovering this more challenging. Well, you've
3: got another oral history here, like Studs Terkel. um, And you've also managed to do what Howard Zinn did, you know, to create a kind of people's history at the same time. You also focus on three people. And I want to talk about those three people. You have um, essentially three migrants, uh, one who came from Mississippi, um, a woman named Ida Mae Gladney, uh, George Starling, who came from
1: Florida, and Robert Foster, who came from Louisiana. Why these three? Well, I interviewed over twelve hundred people to find to narrow it down to uh, three protagonists who would together uh, collectively represent the entire span and breadth and scope of this great migration. I'm sorry, when I
3: heard you use the word protagonist, I have to mention to listeners that you teach non-narrative fiction, uh, excuse me, narrative non-fiction, so you see this as kind of an unfolding epic novel. Absolutely. In
1: some ways, yeah. I view it as a true life novel in a way. I view it as, as a narrative, but it's based upon the, f- the 15 years of rigorous research that, that are required in order to make it come alive uh, and to be the basis for the narrative. So the the three individuals needed to represent the three major streams of this great migration. This was not a haphazard unfurling of lost souls. This was, as with any immigrant stream, um, an orderly uh, relocation of people based upon railroad lines, bus routes, and where people knew someone already. And just as if you were to go to Minnesota and you'd find that many, many people there are from Sweden or Norway, you would also find that along the East Coast, the people in New York and uh, in Washington D.C. and uh, Philadelphia are often from Georgia, the Carolinas, and Virginia, which is the the mich- right up the east coast. Right up the east coast, which is a mm-hmm. migration stream from which my family was, well, which my family was a part of. My mother came from Rome, Georgia, to Washington, and my father from um, from southern Virginia uh, in a different decade. Could I say something about your yes.
3: pedigree? Because your father was a Tuskegee. Airman. My father
1: was a Tuskegee Airman. And after, he, uh, after the war, uh, he instead of returning to Virginia, he went to, uh, to Washington, D.C., where he thought his prospects were better, met my mother, uh, and here I am. And that's the story of so many African Americans. Really, the majority of African Americans that you meet in the North and the West are descended from people who were who part of this great migration and might not even exist. It's hard to think. It's sort of this existential question you might have. What would have happened if they had not migrated and met? Because they would not have otherwise met my mother and Georgia. Or my father in Virginia, they would never have met otherwise so that 's one stream, and I needed to make sure that that was that was represented by uh, George Starling, who migrated from Florida to uh to New York.
3: He was a kind of a, uh, well, he stirred things up a bit, didn't he, down in Florida? Um, yeah,
1: he, he'd had some education and he had to drop out because during those days, uh, African-Americans could only go to uh, a, a couple of schools which are far away. They could not go to the state schools. They could not go to the, the other private schools in Florida. So in his, his region of Florida, there were no other options when they they felt they were not able to Continue to send him, so he began returning to the work of of the uh, the industry in his area, which was citrus citrus industry. And he found that the conditions were uh, were un, unfair, they were dangerous, and they were being um, poorly paid. And he began trying to organize the uh, the fruit. These are citrus. citrus growers. Yeah. Citrus growers. Yeah, he yeah. tried to he tried to organize those citrus pickers and uh, came under the scrutiny of the growers, the grove owners, who did not take well to uh, their pickers uh, demanding higher wages. And when we say higher wages, we're talking about a nickel more for a carton of, of citrus, which was going to ultimately go for five or six dollars, four or five dollars, I'm sorry, on uh, the open market.
3: Well, the other two streams, just to uh, the other two streams, because yeah, I want to get you to California.
1: Yeah, of course. yeah they, well, well the, of course. The the other the other stream is from is up the, the the Midwest, the Illinois Central, from Mississippi, Arkansas, parts of Illinois to Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, and other, the entire Midwest. And and uh, that stream is represented by the protagonist, uh, Ida Mae Gladney, who was a sharecropper's wife who was terrible at picking cotton. Awful at picking it, she could kill a snake and she could uh, she could wring the neck of a chicken for to cook it for dinner, but she could not pick cotton very well. They, she and her husband, ended up having to le- and their two children ended up having to leave um, uh, uh, in the flee essentially uh, without telling anyone. after they saw a beating right? after a yeah. cousin was beaten nearly yeah. to death for a, a, a crime he did not commit. The thing that the the thing that they thought he had stolen. Uh, Turned up the next day, but he was beaten within an inch of his life. And after that happened, her husband said to her, this is the last crop we're making. So she represents the Midwest stream. Went to Chicago and said, it's like heaven, at least for a while. (laughs) Yeah, she said it was like heaven when she first saw it. And then finally, the stream that has gotten the least attention uh, from historians, and that is the stream that brought people from Louisiana and Texas out to the West Coast, from San Diego up to Seattle. And uh, that is represented by a physician, a surgeon, Robert uh, Joseph Pershing Foster, who... uh, Who was Ray
3: Charles, personal physician.
1: He became Ray Charles. Charles, personal physician. I mean, the, as we know, as the story unfolds, you learn that it took a long time and a lot of hard work before he could get to the point where Ray Charles was one of his patients. But he had been an, a surgeon in the Army, and he was able to practice medicine in the Army. But when he got out of the Army during uh, after the Korean War, it turned out he could not practice medicine in, in his own hometown of Monroe, Louisiana. And so he set out on a course for, uh for California he knew he wanted to be in California because that is where m- many of the people who had left Monroe had had come and there's some really famous people who were part of that migration stream from that small town of in, Monroe Louisiana of Monroe yeah. Louisiana one was the um uh, the uh, was Huey, Huey Newton <laughs> the founder of the black He yeah. wound up in Oakland it wound up he wound up in Oakland and uh I- in a whole different sphere of life Bill Russell Bill Russell. The great defensive player, one of the in the one, in the, the in the, one of, of the best basketball players, yeah. one of the best basketball players of all time. Yeah. His parents uh, had a very difficult time in Monroe, Louisiana. One one story that that uh, very quickly about his situation was his father was once at a gas station in Monroe, Louisiana, in line to get gas, but as was the custom, any white customer who would come up for anything, whether it was for ice cream or for uh, for gas would have would would go first and he had to wait and he waited and he waited and eventually because he was in a hurry he decided he would back out of the gas station and go to another one the owner of the gas station stopped pumping for the white person he was uh, uh, helping and went over to bill russell's father put a gun to his head and said you leave when i tell you you can leave uh, once Bill Russell saw his mother crying um, at the kitchen table over the straits they were in and they decided to come uh, out west, a, a treacherous journey. It took a lot of resources and a lot of grit and determination to make it this far because this is the, the farthest you might possibly go if you were African-American in the South or any uh, race for that matter. So they had to be particularly determined. They came to Oakland um, and it was here that in in the Bay Area, that he had the opportunity to go to better schools. He would never have been able to go to integrated schools as he did here. He would not have had the opportunity to go to uh, to college, in an uh, integrated college. He went to the University of, of San Francisco, where he led the Dons to two NCAA championships that would never have happened had his parents stayed in Monroe, Louisiana. And then, of course, he was recruited to the Celtics and led them to 11 out of 13, uh, 11 championships out of 13 years, and history was made.
3: Of course, some of these stories in the North aren't that pretty either. There's a George Sterling story that you tell about, uh, he wouldn't have been served the highball in the South, but then he's in the North, and somebody serves him the drink, but then smashes the glass afterward because he's so angry for having to, have to serve a black man. Uh, there also, you know, San Francisco was a huge magnet, of course, as you point out and uh the shipyards were here. The
1: shipyards. And,
3: and so many after the war came here. I mean, it was part of this migration. Uh, it changed the whole face, obviously, of San Francisco. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. And one reason why the, the West Coast migration has not gotten the same attention is because it was a later migration than the others. Uh, it was, it, you know, the earlier migrations were World War One. This was World War II. By that time, uh, it was so so well established in other parts of the country that it got much more attention. So it was my pleasure and honor to be able to spend time here, I spent a lot of time in, in many of the uh, of the uh, senior centers here, uh, talking with many of the people who knew Robert Foster because he came here to Oakland as well um, in search of what would be the, the best place for him. And uh, he ultimately settled in Los Angeles, but there there are little footprints for him, uh, for him here too because of Monroe, Louisiana.
3: You were also uh, indicating that you had to really understand the geology of the South because I was saying that I never saw. Um, the South referred to as bottomland before, and I and and I'm sure you're familiar with Toni Morrison's *Sula*, where she talks about the bottom being actually a segment of Black life. Uh, clearly, trying to show that this region had its own identity, like the South had for Blacks, it was it was home. It was like um, Mother Africa had been for the slaves who came here, for those who wound up. In the north I mean there is that analogy isn't
1: there? there is that analogy in fact, that was one of the goals or one of the subtexts of the book as I was approaching it, and that is that uh, for African Americans obviously all, everyone they all, everyone knows that uh, the the ultimate uh, origin for African Americans was the, the the continent of Africa particularly west the western part of Africa, but for our Our identity now, uh, for African-American identity now, and for the great interest that people have in genealogy of all races and ethnicities, most African-Americans in the North and the West must return to the South in order to understand where they came from. And that takes you right back to the Great Migration. How did the people get here? Why did they get here? And so it means that that the ancestral homeland for African-Americans culturally and psychologically, emotionally and spiritually is the South, and coming to terms with that is sometimes difficult, which is one reason why it was sometimes difficult to actually tell this story, because a lot of people didn't want to talk about it. People didn't, the the, the parents, the grandparents, the great-grandparents often didn't pass the stories down, because when they left the South, they left it for good, and they didn't look back. Some people changed their name. Uh, Dr. Foster, uh, who we refer to, when, uh, the, the protagonist who came from uh, Monroe, Louisiana, to California, actually changed his name on the drive out. He decided, I'm going to be known uh, no longer as Pershing, but as Robert.
3: And Pershing, made decision. Pershing was a good American name, you know, General Pershing. Well, uh, that's what his
1: mother named him for, but yeah. he decided he was going to be different, and he was going to change it to Robert. Or Robert was his, his first name, actually.
3: You wanted to hear the myriad of voices in this. It's pretty clear. I mean, again, you mentioned Sandberg. There's a sense in Sandberg and, and, uh, uh, of, the, of, of the American vernacular. You wanted to capture that oral history through the voices themselves, didn't you?
1: That was what I felt was most missing, missing in any discussion of the Great Migration because uh, it was first... Uh, examined by economists and sociologists in the World War One, uh, they were looking at what was the effect of all of this in the North and South. They were looking at what was the impact of all of these people being crowded together, one on top of the other. The health issues related to that, and so there was it was usually looked at as a problem, a problem arriving in the cities. They, it wasn't looked at from at the individual heart's desire of the of the people who were making this move, and that's sort of what got lost in the translation as it as it took on. The role of something that was affecting and, in some ways, in in their view, hurting the cities. And I w- wanted to go back and find out, in the same way that there was well, w- the
3: difference between. I was just thinking, Rudolph Fisher, who was a major figure in the Harlem Renaissance, uh, said too much about the Negro problem. I want to find out who these people are. Who I want are the their people? humanity and I want readers to find out who they are. Yeah.
1: Exactly. And that was what was being lost in this. And and the, I, I approached the book with a great sense of urgency because the migration began in 1915 and uh, ended in 1970. You're talking multiple generations of people who uh, who made this migration and they were getting up in years and and time was running out. So I went about this with a great sense of of urgency in the same way that people in the 30s were trying to get to the uh, former slaves, because before it was too late to hear those stories.
3: Capture that uh, soul soon gone, as Jean Tumor yes. put it. Yes. Thinking about that poem of Tumor's uh, in my introduction, "Who set you flowing?" Because he's really talking about he's talking about Washington, where you come yes. from, and the ballooning and the Cadillacs and money in the pocket and all of that sort of thing, but asking the question of what set it off, and it's you know, when you think about the thousands and thousands of people who came here. As I said, it's almost a microcosm of America, of the American experience. It is looking it... for a new life, looking sometimes for streets of gold in the north, just like immigrants from Europe were looking for streets of gold in America.
1: Well, you remember that there is always this deep desire, this latent urge to get out. It all it needed was a precipitating event. Just the hope, the thin thread, there was a chance to make it out, that there was something for them. Because if you think about it, after the Emancipation Proclamation, why was there no flood of people coming out after slavery uh, during the the years from uh, eighteen sixty five until uh, the the World World War One? Why weren't there a, a flood of people leaving the South when they would have had every reason? One would think, particularly as as uh, Jim Crow began to become the law of the land, tightening the vise on what people. Could Could and could not do when they were in the South.
3: I think somebody like Arna Bantam makes that apparent in, uh, I don't know if you know his novel, Black Thunder, but he writes about how a lot of the um, post-slavery blacks really thought that they were going to get a freedom, Mm -hmm. that freedom almost signified to them with the Emancipation Proclamation that they would have land, they would have the kinds of things that they were, in their own minds, being promised that came to represent the whole ideal of freedom and it just didn't come. You're
1: absolutely right. In fact, this... was no, Tom, time, not me. Yeah, <laughs> the, the generation of people who were who started this great migration, the first ones to leave, were the grandchildren of those people. They could see that the Emancipation Proclamation had not come true for them, that actually life had become much harder because Jim Crow laws began to tighten the vise on African Americans as opposed to loosening them and giving them the freedoms that they had hoped and had been promised. And so these were the people, the children who had no more patience for what was Going on, and when the North began recruiting uh, African American recruiting African Americans because of the the uh, shutdown of immigration to the North because of the because of the European War World War One, um, they responded. They responded because finally there was an option that they hadn't had before, and they were primed and ready to leave because they could see that the Emancipation Proclamation had not li- lived up to its name, and in some ways they made it come true through their decision to leave.
3: There's a lot of anger and indignation, too, about returning soldiers. Many of these black yes. soldiers came back, and they'd fought for their country, and again, the freedom and the rights weren't there because of white supremacy.
1: Yeah, there was a case of, uh, of a soldier who returned to Georgia, and he was ordered to take his, uh, his uniform off to never be seen in it again. He wore it again in any case, and um, he was killed for it.
2: You've been listening to a special holiday edition of Forum from Our Archives. That was our recently retired host, Michael Krasny, in conversation with Isabel Wilkerson about her groundbreaking book, The Warmth of Other Suns: The Epic Story of America's Great Migration. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Thanks for listening.
1: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.